and welcome to Conversations with Matt DeLockery. In the last episode, we covered the first three of the five metaphors that describe the believer's relationship with Christ and what is now different as a result of being in Christ. Those were circumcision, baptism, and death and resurrection. Today, we're going to look at the last two and then pull everything together. If you remember from last time, we talked about all of these metaphors being connected. These are not independent ways of describing the believer's relationship with Christ. Rather, they are more like standing beside Paul and walking around this thing with him as he explains to us what it looks like from all sides. So, to continue on, we need to pick up the themes from the third metaphor, death and resurrection. We saw last time that those who are in Christ, i.e. those who are part of the church, have been forgiven for all their trespasses. But we never really talked about what those trespasses were. This is what verse 14 talks about. Verse 14 says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Christ was able to forgive us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The obvious question is, what is the record of debt? Answering this will help us to figure out what Paul means by trespasses. Some people want to say that this record of debt is the Mosaic Law. You know, all those rules you find at the beginning part of the Bible. On the surface, it sounds good because the record of debt is further described as standing against us with its legal demands. And that sounds a lot like what people describe the Mosaic Law as doing. However, when you think back to the pronoun discussion we had in the last episode and look at what Paul says here, that view doesn't make sense. In verse 13, Paul said, You, meaning Gentiles, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but that God has forgiven us, meaning both Jews and Gentiles, all our trespasses. Whatever law the trespasses violate is something that stands against both Jews and Gentiles. Now you might try to make an argument that the law of Moses stood against everyone, including Gentiles, but really, that's kind of a stretch. The Mosaic Law was a covenant between God and Israel, so it's a little hard to see how that would apply to those who were not a part of Israel, you know, Gentiles. There is, however, another and better way to understand this. I think this is actually referring to the moral law itself. The moral law is the unchanging standards of right and wrong that are based on God's own nature. The Mosaic Law would be a particular application of the moral law to a particular people at a particular time. The more limited understanding of right and wrong that the Gentiles had would also be pointing in the direction of God's moral law, though Paul would have considered this to be more primitive than the Mosaic law. The moral law itself is the only thing that would stand against Jews and Gentiles equally, since each group had different levels of revelation. That means, then, that the record of debt that stands against everyone with its legal demands is the record of each person's actions in response to the moral law, or, more specifically, the record of each person's actions in response to what they had the ability to understand of the moral law. This is what the death of Christ on the cross removed. All men stand guilty before God of having broken the moral law, but those who become part of the new family God have received forgiveness. Finally, we come to the last of the five metaphors that describe the effects of our relationship with Christ and that is disarming and triumph. 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame 
by triumphing over them in him. Let's start with the disarming. The rulers and authorities were the ones disarmed. But who are they and what was their weapon? There is no mention of any physical weapons in the letter. Paul is in prison and physical punishment could, I think, count as a weapon of sorts. That is not something that the Colossians are threatened with. The issue for them is this alternative philosophy or alternative worldview. But even something like that is not being forced on them. It's more like an optional, though bad, road that they can take, and Paul is telling them not to. The only thing that sounds like it is against the Colossians comes from the previous verse, verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. If the record of debt is the weapon, then that would mean that Christ disarming the rulers and authorities is his taking away of the weapon that they were using against the Colossians and all believers. This weapon is the record of their, and our, misdeeds. Since Christ has forgiven us for all of our trespasses, the things that we have done wrong can no longer be used against us. Let's see if we can explain this with an analogy. It's like a man is being blackmailed with some sort of secret he doesn't want his wife to know. Only in this case, he confesses to his wife what he did and she forgives him. Now, that secret the person is holding over him as blackmail is worthless. The weapon that was being used against him can no longer harm him. Now, I'm not saying that the Colossians, or us, are being blackmailed by evil forces, but the imagery is the same. The weapon that was held against us has been taken away by Christ. Since we have forgiveness, those who would wish to do us harm have nothing on us. They are without a weapon. All right, then, who are the rulers and authorities? It can be tempting to look at evil human rulers and authorities, such as those who conspire to kill Jesus, and say that this points to them. However, I don't think humans have the ability to wield the record of a person's misdeeds as a weapon, or even have access to it. I think it makes better sense to think of these rulers and authorities as evil angelic forces who are accusing the people of God before God. It's like they're reporting to God everything that his people have done in an effort to show him that they are not good people and to show God, possibly, that his efforts have failed. However, as we know, since those who are in Christ have been forgiven, all the accusations come to nothing. Now, we can't know if that's the exact scenario that Paul had in mind, because he doesn't say. Evil angelic beings accusing believers before God, that is. However, I think it does make the best sense to think of the rulers and authorities here as evil angelic beings who wish to do God's people harm. And if their weapon is a record of what people have done wrong, then something like what I just described seems reasonable, though it could be something else. Now, Christ does not just disarm these rulers and authorities. He also exposes them to open shame and triumphs over them. This word shame is really interesting. The Greek word behind this is used only one other time in the New Testament. It occurs in Matthew 1.19 when Joseph refused to make an example of Mary. If Joseph had exposed Mary... He would have not been actively shaming her, but she still would have been shamed. He would have been exposing her as an adulteress, and the shaming would have naturally resulted because of how what she had done would have been viewed by the community. This not only makes it clear that the rulers and authorities here wish the people of God harm, but we can see how things are going to end up for them. They will be put to an open shame when what they have done is revealed. Christ will triumph over them the same way a Roman military leader would celebrate a triumph after he defeated a great enemy in battle. 
And think back to those elemental spirits of the world from verse 8 that everyone was worried about. What Paul is saying here is that the forces of evil who are trying to do believers harm will not win in the end. Christ has triumphed over them and will put them to an open shame. It is better, therefore, to be on the side of Christ because it is his side that will ultimately win. Okay, let's pull all these metaphors together and see what this all means. Remember, Paul is trying to explain what Christ has done for believers, thereby showing why the Christian way is better than any alternative. This is an abstract concept, and abstract concepts are not usually defined by listing out all the necessary and sufficient conditions. Rather, they are defined by clusters of metaphors, which is what we have here. Paul is walking us around the idea and helping us to look at it from all sides. What we really want to do, then, is to get a general idea of what all this stuff is saying and where it's pointing. Let's review the five metaphors that Paul used. 1. Circumcision. Chapter 2, verse 11. This refers to spiritual circumcision. Like physical circumcision, it signifies the person has become a part of a new people. The believer has become part of the church and the new people of God. 2. Baptism. Chapter 2, verse 12. Baptism is the initiation rite for the Colossians' spiritual circumcision and their entrance into the new people of God, the church. This baptism is representative of being buried and raised with Christ, and it begins the transitional process of becoming a renewed person. 3. Death and Resurrection. 2.13. The death and resurrection of the Colossians with Christ has provided forgiveness from their moral transgressions. Previously, circumcision was a category of relationship and not a moral category, but here they are combined because forgiveness happens as a part of relationship with Christ. 4. Cancellation of the record of debt. 2.14. The something that stood against both Jews and Gentiles equally was the moral law. The record of debt is a record of each person's actions in response to the moral law, accounting for the fact that some had a more full understanding of it than others. And in Christ, the Colossians are now free from accusation from the record of debt. N5. Disarming and Triumph. 2.15. The record of debt was a weapon the evil powers used against the Colossian believers. Christ took this away from them and thereby disarmed them. As a result of Christ's victory on the cross, the powers have now been exposed for what they truly are, which results in their public shame. At first glance, these metaphors can seem a little disconnected. In reality, though, they present a very unified picture. Those who follow Christ gain three things. 1. Entrance into the new people of God. This is explained by circumcision and baptism. 2. Forgiveness from moral transgressions as part of this new relationship, explained by death and resurrection and the cancellation of the record of debt. And three, freedom from the powers who stood against them, explained by disarming and triumph. In Christ and only in Christ have Christians been transferred from their old existence as a part of the world and subject to the world's powers into a new people, the new people of God, in whom they have received forgiveness. All of this is made possible through Christ's death and resurrection. Therefore, because Christ is who he is, 1, 15-20, and this new life comes through his death and resurrection, it is not possible that anyone else could have provided new life. Even if someone else had died on a cross in an attempt to do what Christ did, that person would still not have been the image of the invisible God and the creator of all things. 
Christ's death and resurrection are unique and therefore cannot be replicated. If the Colossians want the new life as part of the new people of God, they must find it in Christ. If we want new life as part of the new people of God, we must find it in Christ. We cannot achieve even a single thing apart from Christ, forgiveness, victory, etc. Because all of the benefits we see in this passage are linked and are only possible through Christ's work. We have been made full and complete in Christ, and as we have received him, so we should walk in him. Nothing any other worldview can offer can come close. 